Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Do you want to have a full and more vibrant life? Then don't neglect a single part of your health. Taking care of yourself responsibly means balancing your social, emotional, mental, physical, intellectual, and spiritual health. It's a multidimensional, more comprehensive, and more rewarding approach. I hope you've enjoyed and learned ways to improve your social, emotional, and mental health so far. But now it's time to nurture our physical health. All of my guests compel you to care for your body so that you don't just survive, but thrive. Former two-time Olympian, Bayano Kamani. Instead of asking someone for an extrinsic value on why you should do something, you should have a starting point with your first why. Start there, and along the way, you'll collect other reasons for doing it so that no matter what situation presents itself, you will still have a why for getting out of the door. Sleep physician and psychiatrist, Dr. Kara Uli. When things get so off with their sleep, that actually restricts their freedom. And a lot of the teens that I'm meeting with, they're so exhausted that they're just locked into that and they don't have freedom and they can't explore because they're so tired and it erodes their relationships. Treatment for teens and is very different from adults. It's about allowing them to have good enough sleep such that they can function and then they can do what they are supposed to do as teens, which is to figure out what they want. Healthy aging expert and nutritionist, Annie Goudreau. My value is that I want to age with strength and be able to have the most quality of life for the longest amount of time. That's my driver. You have to have an intimate relationship with yourself first and foremost. Never mind your husband or your wife or partner or whatever. It starts here. And founder of Yoga for Arthritis, Dr. Stephanie Munaz. Pain deteriorates gray matter in the brain. Meditation builds gray matter in the brain. And so you can think of, and especially because it's in similar regions, you could say that Meditation is an antidote for the effects of chronic pain on the brain. If you are curious about becoming a physically healthy human being, you'll be happy you took the time to listen. Today, we have our fourth guest in the physical health series, Dr. Stephanie Munaz, founder of Yoga for Arthritis. I have been really looking forward to this conversation because I know it's going to be a good one when even the emails get me excited. (laughs) Because it was already a learning moment. I must admit, I really wanted to focus mostly on the physical and you were gently nudging me back going, this is not really totally a physical disease. That's just part of the story. So... Thank you. Thank you for being here. I want to start with one of the quotes from your book that really coalesces this idea very well for me. Great. Arthritis is often falsely considered to be a disease of the musculoskeletal system only. And yoga is often considered to be merely a form of physical exercise for strengthening and stretching the physical body. Oh, Stephanie, music (laughs) to my ears. Oh, I'm so delighted that you chose to start there because we're just digging in. <laughs> yes, I want to start juicy and my my listeners know that I just love a deep dive. Yeah. So let's do it. Why is it important for us to understand that concept? Yeah, so, uh, well, you know, throughout the work that I have done, I feel like I am constantly being pulled toward 
thinking and talking about both arthritis and yoga as physically oriented. And that I keep pulling back and saying, whoa, 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 wait, you're looking at a tiny slice of the pie. And what I love about the application of yoga for life with arthritis is that they are both absolutely whole person. And I'm sure if I were an expert in other chronic conditions, I would say the same thing. And I'm sure if I were an expert in other mind-body approaches, I would say the same thing. But I am excited about the application of the whole system of yoga to the whole person who happens to be living with arthritis. So let me start with the arthritis part in that um, someone who is living with arthritis does not only feel the effects of arthritis in their joints, they feel the effects of arthritis in their lives. And so if we are only looking at what's happening biomechanically, we're missing a whole lot of what's going on. And even if we were just talking about the physical body, there's a whole lot that's happening in the physical body that is not limited to the joint tissue. There is the complexity of pain processing, which involves what's happening in the mind and brain, which ha what's happening in the communication of the central and peripheral nervous systems. It's happening in the immune system, especially for systemic forms of arthritis. It's happening in the other tissues surrounding the joint tissue, right? So that's only on a physical level, let alone, of course, the implications of physical limitations on one's social roles, on one's sense of self, on one's relationships. So if we think about arthritis as a whole person situation, then it makes a, a lot of sense to think about yoga beyond the physical postures, because that's usually where people go is arthritis is in the joints, asana, the physical postures of yoga, obviously would help with a condition that's in the joints. But in fact, what I have seen in my research and in my years of working clinically with this population is the asana, the physical postures are the least of it. And absolutely, there are effects of the asana on the physical body. And the mindfulness aspect of yoga is huge in living with an unpredictable chronic and flaring disabling condition. And the practices of Pradipakshabhavana, replacing a negative thought with a positive one. Mm -hmm. That's a huge tool. Being able to rewire the brain and change the functioning of the central nervous system. Huge, right? So I think a lot is lost when we think about standing in some postures that are going to strengthen the tissues around the joints. Okay, so my brain was totally firing as you were talking. One of the things that I really loved in reading your book, Yoga Therapy for Arthritis, and listening to you talk just now, there's an implication about stress and mm -hmm. how we overlook the stress response and how active it is in a day-to-day -day living with a chronic disease. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so this is a feedback loop. So when you think about the relationship between stress and pain, it is stressful to be in pain. Mm -hmm. When someone is in pain, and let's just give the example of someone's in pain and therefore can't conduct activities of daily living or mm -hmm. can't conduct their job duties or can't, you know, care for their children or whatever it is, that's stressful. Being in pain all of the time has a physical effect on the body of increasing stress hormones in the body. So on a physiological level, there's psychological stress and there's physiological stress that happens when you are in pain. And the stress exacerbates pain. So especially for 
I'm going to pause for a moment here, Nadine, because I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the many different types of arthritis. Please. And I'll, I'll start by just putting them into two buckets, mm-hmm. which is there are the forms of arthritis that are primarily biomechanical. And then there are the forms of arthritis that are primarily systemic autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first category the most well-known would be osteoarthritis, which is the most prevalent form of arthritis. It tends to be more likely as we get older, when we're doing repetitive motion, when we've had a prior injury, but there are a whole lot of forms of arthritis that are systemic in nature that affect a smaller subset of the population, but are that have their origins in the dysregulation of the immune system. So the immune system recognizes the joint tissue as foreign and sends its army, I'm making air quotes, of immune cells to attack the joint tissue. And so there's an erosion of joint tissue by the immune system. So they have similar features. They have similar symptoms for sure and very different mechanisms. For all of those autoimmune forms of arthritis, which would include rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, the list goes on. Increased stress exacerbates disease activity because the system is under stress. It's going to be even more dysregulated, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So there is a direct relationship between psychological stress and disease activity in those situations, but also in the more mechanical forms of arthritis, those those also do have a systemic inflammatory component to them, but a much smaller one. There is also a relationship there in that our experience of pain, our tolerance of pain, our reactivity to pain changes when we're under stress. So aside from the sort of immune dysregulation component of it, there is also a cyclical relationship between stress and pain in other forms of arthritis that we might think of as more biomechanical in nature. Hmm. That makes a ton of sense. It's the connection of the body and mind. And even if we can't necessarily see it, or if we bury the feelings of feeling stress, they are still going to show up physically, whether we are undergoing a lifelong chronic condition or not. And maybe even more so, Nadine. I mean, it's possible that by not processing those emotions, by not allowing ourselves to express them in a healthy way, that they may even have more of a physiological effect. Yeah. I mean, we can definitely go down the rabbit hole here. (laughs) It affects everything. It affects your cognition. It affects your memory. It it can affect uh, cellular aging, the constant release of cortisol. There there are so many sequelae that people don't necessarily appreciate about how stress affects us on a a deep level and on a a whole level as a person. And this is something else I heard in what you were saying and what I have learned from talking to all of my interviewees for the physical domain part of the podcast. I have been struck by how all of you are saying that not taking care of yourself physically mm-hmm. bleeds into social relationships as well. Yeah. Can I make a little sidebar here? Please. (laughs) So I think an unfortunate consequence of understanding this relationship is that sometimes it can fuel shame and blame Mm. related to stress management. That if we understand that stress management is a way to manage chronic pain and chronic health conditions then it can place more of the onus on the individual to get it together, so to speak. And so for the individual, there can sometimes be a feeling of, and especially for those who maybe 
lifetime yoga practitioners mm -hmm. or feel as though they have a robust toolbox for self-care, mm -hmm. why can't I figure this out? Why aren't I doing a better job? And I think probably all of us, especially in this past year plus, have felt like of all people, I should be able to manage my stress better than I feel like I am right now. And so for those with chronic conditions, that can be exacerbated even more to a feeling of it's my fault that my disease is flaring. It's my fault that, you know, I have created a life circumstance or perpetuated a life circumstance that is unmanageable for me psychologically and or so that's the shame part. The blame part is it's your fault that I am so stressed and therefore in pain. It's your fault, family member. It's your fault, boss. It's your fault, divine entity, that I am in these circumstances that are unmanageable. And so from a yoga perspective, I think there's an opportunity to step back as a witness to that and think about whether or not that's a productive point of view. Mm -hmm. And if we can instead work to accept the circumstances we're in and do what is possible in this moment to shift that dynamic in some way. So this is the beauty of a yoga practice too. Coming to the chair or the mat or in the water or whatever medium and not forcing, if we're going to talk about asana specifically right now, not forcing your body into a particular pose, accepting what yeah. your body can do in the moment and modifying. That's one level of self-acceptance. And then something else that I've noticed in my years of teaching is this meta level of self-acceptance too, where you can even approach a yoga practice differently from day to day, from moment to yeah. moment, simply because you were able to do a pose or something on one day or your balance was better on one day. And maybe it's not in the next class. It's an opportunity to take a step back, as you said, and look at that narrative that or that feeling or what emotions are coming up and to learn more about ourselves to challenge our inner narratives. Right. Are they serving? Are they no longer serving? Finding these moments where we can show ourselves compassion so that we can take the yoga practice, which is not just confined to the hour, <laughs> into life and, and live yoga as a lifestyle. Right. So that what is possible in a particular yoga posture and one's response to that in thought, word, and deed can be reflected in what is possible in other life circumstances and one's response to that in thought, word, and deed. So, you know, I'm having trouble standing in this particular pose today because my ankle is swollen and it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm having trouble loading the dishwasher today because mm -hmm. my wrist is swollen and it's uncomfortable. And those are parallel circumstances. But when we practice it on the mat, it's more likely, you know, our yogic response, so to speak, is more likely to show up off of the mat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What else is important for us to know about a person who is living with chronic pain? There is a lot of identity that is wrapped up in physical ability. Uh, and I don't know how specific that is to our particular culture, this time and place that we're living in. Um, but we're all physically limited, right? There are limits to what all of us can do physically. But I think it's particularly challenging when someone is accustomed to a certain level of function and then that changes. That we wrap our identities up in what we are capable of doing physically. 
And it can be a real existential crisis to find oneself in a position where physical ability is dramatically decreased. And that can happen at the beginning of a journey with arthritis, but arthritis is episodic. It flares. And so it can also happen intermittently throughout the journey with arthritis. So there can be varying degrees of loss and there can also be periods of regain and then loss again. And I do think that there is a a grief process that happens mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. There's also, there's some fear around it. Fear of what am I going to lose next? Or when is the next flare going to come? And how is that going to affect how I can show up in the world for myself and other people? And so I think that it's important for We all know people who have arthritis. It's so incredibly prevalent. And so to have some compassion for it being a whole lot more complex than my knees are bothering me a little bit more today. We are gaining more scientific evidence that yoga is a wonderful practice for many reasons, for supporting physical health, for emotional health, for spiritual health, whole person. Can you talk a little bit about the scientific benefits of yoga and specifically for a person who's living with a chronic disease and may feel like I'm in too much pain to move? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great question. Okay. So I am a scientist. (laughs) So forgive me that everything that I say is going to have caveats to it because that's how scientists think and communicate. We do not have evidence to parse out which yoga practices necessarily have which effects for the lives of people with arthritis. The vast majority of yoga research is on a a comprehensive yoga practice, or at least a hatha practice that has multiple elements to it. So strengthening poses, balancing poses, range of motion, joint mobilization, breathing practices, mindfulness, meditation, maybe chanting, maybe yoga nidra, you know, body scans, progressive relaxation, philosophy, right? So there is a black box of yoga practice that in each research study has a different sort of combination of ingredients. And they all tend to have similar outcomes. So we really don't know what is the optimal combination of ingredients for the outcomes that we're seeking. We just know this comprehensive yoga practice with a lot of different parts to it does a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe there's a synergistic relationship between these things and that it's when you combine the mindfulness with the breathing, with the postures, that it has this effect. And maybe there are some parts of it that are really important and others that have less of an effect or they each have different effects, right? We don't know any of that, but we have some ideas theoretically about what makes sense from what other science has shown us. So we know, for example, from exercise research that uh, stabilizing postures, poses and movements that strengthen the stabilizing muscles around a joint, creating greater stability in the joint helps to reduce a lot of extra movement that happens in the joint that results in greater wear and tear. So when we strengthen the stabilizing muscles, we may slow the progression of the arthritis and the stability in the joint can make up for some of the connective tissue that's been lost. That scientifically makes sense. And we it would make sense that that's happening in the yoga practice. We also know that balance increases stability, decreases risk of fall. As people get older and they have arthritis and they're less stable, they're also more likely to fall. They're also more fearful of falling. And when they're afraid of falling, they're going to do less physically. 
that can result in a deterioration Snowball. of physical ability. Right. Mm-hmm. And the systemic forms of arthritis have an associated cachexia. So that's a, a loss of muscle tissue that uh, some people may be familiar with in the context of cancer or in the context of HIV AIDS. It also happens in some of these rheumatic conditions where the muscle is degraded as part of the disease process. And of course, if you're in pain, you're going to do less, you're going to move less, you're going to lose strength because of that. As you lose strength, you do less. So that's a, a cycle too, mm-hmm. right? So the, the strength and stability that is supported and fostered through yoga makes sense. And in fact, physical activity is a core recommendation of arthritis management, no matter what kind of arthritis you have. And yoga is an accessible when it is appropriate form of physical activity. I, you know, you said in the introduction that yoga is often characterized as merely a physical activity. It's more than a physical activity, but it is a physical activity. And it's one that can be easily modified so that people can make it work for them, Mm -hmm. whatever their abilities and limitations are. And then we talked about stress management. And so the breathing practices that shift us out of stress response and into a relaxation response, parasympathetic engagement can help with pain processing. The meditation practices that build gray matter in areas of the brain that are degraded by the existence of chronic pain. That, that I'm going to back up and say that again, because it's sort of mind blowing to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's so important. It's so important. Chronic pain deteriorates gray matter in the brain. Meditation builds gray matter in the brain. And so you can think of, and especially because it's in similar regions, you could say that meditation is an antidote for the effects of chronic pain on the brain. Moment of silence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is why I I am saying repeatedly, do not skip the meditation. You know, people think about meditation as this like little dessert on the end of a yoga practice that like, it's, it's nice, but it's not essential and it's okay to skip it or it's okay to leave before that. And some people think that they can't meditate or it's a mm-hmm. waste of time. All of this stuff around meditation as an aspect of yoga practice, it is huge mm-hmm. in terms of arthritis management. And most people would not fathom that meditation mattered for arthritis. I had a lot of trouble with explaining and with inviting the population I teach, wise women, mature women, because what we hear and what we say is that yoga is for the young, thin, flexible, Mm -hmm. and it is an acrobatic practice where a beautiful life woman is in a Cirque du Soleil position, then why would it be inviting to go do this practice? And we separate, even though they're part of the eight limbs, we separate the meditation and the concentration and the focus. We separate yoga ethics, the yamas and Mm -hmm. the niyamas from the yoga practice and really isolate the physical practice, the asanas, and maybe some pranayama, maybe some breathing. Right, right. Well, also, you know, you're speaking to people who are not necessarily the stereotypical West, the the body that does Mm -hmm. yoga in the West, which Mm -hmm. let's be clear, that's not universally a yoga body around the world and across time. Um, But to sit in meditation is also an incredibly challenging pose. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that we see meditation traditionally represented, which oftentimes is on the floor in a lotus pose of some sort, cross-legged position, being able to focus the mind while in pain is challenging enough, let alone trying to get into a posture and stay there in discomfort. So I do want to say that it is 
not only okay to meditate in any position that is comfortable and safe for your body, but you should, because if you're distracted by physical discomfort in your body, then you're, you know, you're pushing against a current in trying to focus the mind, which is the objective of the meditation practice. Meditate sitting in a chair, meditate lying down on your couch, meditate walking around the neighborhood, meditate washing the dishes, you know, whatever your way in might be to be able to focus the mind. Sometimes I even meditate in my bathtub. Love it. Because I'm by myself. It's warm. I'm comfortable. Yeah. And it's an opportunity to be quiet and to allow myself to relax, to let my body relax. It is relaxing so that I can focus on my breath or a visual or a word and just be there. I'm really happy we went down this path too, because these are words that are also intimidating, being fearful of thinking of yoga as a religion. Mm. Or what does it mean? What does spirituality mean? That's scary too. How do you explain to someone who would really benefit from a whole yoga practice that it is not a religious practice? Yeah. So it helps for me that the tradition of my initial yoga training was uh, integral yoga, which was founded by Swami Sachidananda. And he had a philosophy of one truth, many paths. And when I went to the ashram for integral yoga in Buckingham, Virginia, there is a temple that's called the Lotus Temple. And if you go into the lower floor of the Lotus Temple, there are artifacts around the outside of the circle. It's a a circular building. Around the outside of the first floor are artifacts of all of the major religions, including the smaller religions, including a humanistic approach, including, you know, non-religion, atheism and agnosticism. And they are all um, focused inward toward a sculpture of children dancing in a circle. So there is a connection between all of these traditions as welcome. You go up to the second floor and around the exterior are the symbols of all of the major religions, as well as a symbol for unknown religions and, you know, humanism, et cetera. And they shine toward a central light in the middle of the meditation hall. So yoga is not specific to any of those traditions. Yoga is the focusing of the mind. I mean, really, the initial practices of yoga were in order to connect with the divine. So there is not one tradition that has an ownership of that or a right way to do that. And in fact, meditation or the focusing of the mind or concentration is a part of the majority of religions in some form, if you look back historically. And so I encourage people to bring Whatever connection they have, whatever, I I really think of spirituality as connection, just connection. What are you, what do you feel a connection to? Mm. Whether that is connection to the earth, connection to all living things, connection to humanity as a whole, connection to the cosmos, connection to a higher power or higher powers, however you define them. What helps you to feel that connection? How do you define that connection? What's meaningful? for you? And can you use that in your practice to bring meaning into the practice instead of saying all beliefs are separate from our yoga practice, whatever your beliefs are, Mm. bring them in. Mm. So if that means that you're, you have a prayer in your mind or in your heart that becomes the focus of your meditation, 
bring it. If there's a song in your mind that you want to use as a chant when you're doing your home practice, if there is, you know, a, a feeling of connection that you can foster through your practice, I say it's all welcome. And if you, if that is something that is personal to you, that's not part of a tradition and that is not religious at all, you know, there is a big difference between religion and spirituality. People may experience spirituality through religion, but it's not the only way. And there's plenty of religious practice that is absolutely devoid of a sense of spirituality, <laughs> right? So I would say that yoga is a spiritual practice and it's an opportunity to bring in whatever allows you to feel a sense of connection. Beautifully said. I can't add anything to that. How about some fun anecdotes? What are a couple of your favorites? There is one, there are a few in the book that come to mind um, right away. And, you know, talking about our sense of self and the connection uh, between our physical capability and arthritis as a, a potential diminisher of that and yoga as a potential fosterer of that. When I'm training yoga teachers or yoga therapists in this work, I usually encourage them to start a, you know, multi-week session of yoga for arthritis in chairs so that everyone who comes in can sit in a chair. It's accessible. It's not intimidating. If you're sitting on the floor and people come into the room, they feel like they're supposed to sit on the floor. They also may feel like, I'm not sure if I can get on the floor. And then if I get down there, I'm not quite sure I could get back mm -hmm. up. But I have experienced in my years of doing this work that at some point in an eight-week series, everybody gets on the floor. Now, that's if I'm doing a series with people who are able to ambulate without a assistance, okay? If I go into a nursing home and we're doing a chair-based class, I do not have the expectation that people are going to get on the floor at all. But for a studio-based class, for people who are able to walk into the room on their own, my experience has been everybody's able to get on the floor and back up again. And part of that is because I teach them how to get on the floor and back up again. And in a particular cohort of students, there was one who was struggling with the concept of getting down to the floor and back up again due to limited strength. She, she, had, mm. uh, she actually did not know that she had rheumatoid arthritis. So she came into our research study thinking she had osteoarthritis. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar, they get managed completely differently. And someone who has rheumatoid arthritis is overseen by a rheumatologist and has a, you know, a pharmacological approach that's very different. And so this was unmanaged rheumatoid arthritis, undiagnosed, obviously muscle tissue deterioration, and she was struggling. And mm. so in this particular cohort, when it was, she was able to get down to the floor, but then getting back up was a challenge. So when it was time to get up, I would nonchalantly walk over to her as I'm giving instruction to the rest of the class about putting a knee on the floor and putting whatever. I would reach over with my hand and offer my hand. And if she held onto my hand with a little bit of support, she was able to get up to standing. Well, on a particular day, at some point in the series, I walked over to her as I normally did, reached out my hand, and she waved my hand away that she did not want my help. So that's fine. <laughs> so I backed away and everybody else in the class came to standing and they were capable of coming to standing pretty expeditiously. So at that point, I have not given any instruction to the rest of the room except to come into mountain pose and sort of feel themselves grounded and lengthened and all of that. And this student still has not come to standing and she's working on it. And I know that she doesn't want my help. And at this point, everyone in the room has turned to watch her. 
And I am mortified. Mm -hmm. I am mortified for her because I feel like she must be really uncomfortable with the amount of attention. She probably feels uncomfortable asking for my help now that she has waved me off. And so I'm feeling a huge amount of compassion for her in this situation. She manages after what felt like an eternity to get herself to standing and the room broke out in applause. (laughs) And so not only was that a personal triumph for her and demonstrating the effect that yoga had had in building her ability to do something that she had not been able to do for years, which is an activity of daily life, Mm -hmm. being able to get up means you can do a whole lot of things that you can't do if you're unable to get up. But also the sense of community and of support for that student was just so incredibly heartwarming. And it reminds me that not only does yoga build our physical strength and physical ability, but the connection, you know, that's a sense of spirituality too. Mm -hmm. Our connection to each other and how we lift each other up and celebrate each other's successes is really a nod toward the practice of yoga in a group and especially the practice of yoga in a group of people who have some kind of common understanding. That's lovely. Just lovely. Is there anything else we have left out of our wonderful conversation? You touched on representation. Hmm. And I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't round that out a little bit further. Because I think that it is beginning to shift. But if people don't see themselves in the image of yoga... And if they don't see themselves, you know, not only in how yoga is represented in the media, but also if they don't see themselves in yoga spaces, mm-hmm. then the bar to entry is so much higher. And especially for people who are margula- marginalized in any way and therefore may have trepidations about going into a yoga space to start with, um, for arthritis, It tends to, because osteoarthritis is by far the most prevalent, it tends to affect people who are older, who are rarely represented in yoga imagery and are rarely present and targeted in yoga spaces, and also people of color who are affected by arthritis at similar rates but whose arthritis severity Mm -hmm. in terms of disease activity and symptoms is far greater for a whole lot of reasons, including our healthcare system and disparities there, Mm -hmm. including all of the sociological factors Mm -hmm. that affect how chronic disease manifests itself in underserved populations. So for those who are in positions where they are able to shift the narrative or make choices about representation, make choices about who is welcomed intentionally, uh, make choices about hiring that can diversify representation at all levels of yoga from those in positions of leadership, those who are providing yoga as yoga teachers and yoga therapists, those who are welcomed into yoga teacher trainings and training programs and students. I think we have a lot of work to do to make yoga not only available and accessible, but welcoming to people who stand to benefit most from it and may not feel as though they belong. There was a lot in there, and I completely agree with you you have a question for me? Yeah. So where do we go next from here? You know, you are gathering all of these thought leaders and experts in different areas and bringing this really robust body of knowledge and insight to your listeners. 
what do we do with that? Where do we go next? I love this question. Thank you for it. This year of podcasting in particular definitely feels like a quest for me and it it feels bigger than me. Mm. And I really feel like I am doing the work I am meant to do by shedding so much light on these different subjects. There's nothing more valuable than our health. It just isn't. Your health is so important and something not to be taken for granted. I saw that a lot when I was practicing pathology. Mm-hmm. Nothing is given. Yeah. We do ourselves a disservice when we don't expand what it means to be healthy. Mm. That's what I've been trying to do this year by talking to people who are very passionate and knowledgeable and have had so much experience with these different subject areas so that my listeners can start to identify areas in their lives they might not have thought may be affecting their overall health and well-being and to be able to start to take a look at that. And it is a very yogic, holistic idea of whole person, but whole life. Not just, not just numbers. It is important to take care of your physical body, but how do you reach your potential as a healthy person? You mentioned identity earlier. I've run into people who identified with their work life, with the career. And when that ends, it's a crisis. So I thought, How about doing this year where we can really talk about, slow down and really talk about how to be the healthiest person possible? Mm. So that's what I'm hoping happens. What I love about that is, um, you know, it made me think about when you're talking about how essential health is, what is your health for? Mm -hmm. Right? When we're talking about, optimizing our health, that it's not, it's not just health for health's sake. It's because of everything that is possible when you are living as an optimally healthy being. And when we think about that holistically, that is physical health, mental health, emotional, social, spiritual health. And what are you going to do with that? There is, there's this concept um, in Okinawa of an ikigai, a, um, a reason for getting up in the morning is like, you know, a loose translation of like, what's your thing, you know, that is like so important to you that you want to jump out of bed in the morning for it, whether that is your grandchildren or whether that is, mm-hmm. you know, your dharma, your life's purpose. And if we can identify a why, I think it goes a long way to empowering us to to optimize our health in service of something greater than just you know what are your lipid numbers exactly right? exactly more meaningful yeah because those those are foundational those are at the bottom of the maslow's hierarchy right, right? and so if they're met then you can ascend to self esteem and self actualization and service so, mhm from that, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And knowing knowing your purpose. And that's where I feel like I am right now. Yeah. yeah. I love it. So yeah, thank you for that. My last question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Stephanie, what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Hmm. I think of health in all of the domains that we discussed. And there, there's a concept that sometimes gets used in health research that is called health-related quality of life. And health-related quality of life has lots of different domains to it. And we can sort of measure how your health is affecting your quality of life in all different areas. So when I am not optimally physically healthy, that has an effect on my quality of life. When I am not optimally socially healthy, that has an effect on my quality of life. And you can even think about it as a wheel. And that when we are living our fullest, when we are functioning optimally in all of those areas, the whole circle is complete. And when we're diminished in one, then there's like a smaller piece of the pie in a certain segment. 
And I think about each of those as being in balance. So um, there is the concept of homeostasis when we're well-regulated, we're in balance. And then there's allostasis when we're sort of getting pulled Mm -hmm. off of our balance in one way or another. And the more allostatic load there is, the more of a pull there is, the harder we have to work to be able to pull ourselves back to balance. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to see in my own aims, as well as the students and clients that I work with, is being able to stand on center, whatever the pulling might be, not getting pulled off center in order to have to pull oneself back, but being able to stand in the middle of that balance despite all of the circumstances that pull at us in various directions. So it is, it is a lifelong process for sure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so very much for being here. It was a real pleasure to have you. And the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to listening to uh, all of the other guests that you have as well. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. In this episode, my biggest takeaway was when Stephanie told us that meditation is an antidote for the effects of chronic pain on the brain. So, if you're already a meditator, great. If not, where will you choose to practice regularly? In bed? Sitting in a chair? Sitting on the floor? How will you choose to practice regularly? Focusing on your breath? Focusing on a word, phrase, or prayer? Or using visualization? So try a meditation that works for you today. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. I'm a worrier. It's a little much, I think. And yoga always calmed me down. You know, it gave me a a positive focus. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, It's just really been like a centerpiece in my life. And I didn't have that until virtual yoga. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally... Podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals, my daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass, yours truly, on percussion, and produced by Tim Buell. Thanks for being here. See you next time.